Hello, friend, and welcome to Write Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a longtime medical writer who shifted from a career as a trauma OR nurse into academia and then transitioned from academia into freelance writing in continuing medical education. I've built a sustainable six-figure business that specializes in creating and evaluating educational content for health professionals, and I use my expertise in education and healthcare to guide rich, honest conversations about the practice of creating CME content with intention. And I teach medical writers how to create CME content with confidence. Write Medicine is here to offer you guidance and strategies as you navigate all phases of CME. Come and join our thoughtful, provocative and valuable conversations about adult learning, teaching platforms, content creation techniques, effective formats in CME and trends in healthcare that influence the type of content we create. Right Medicine is here to motivate you to learn and grow as a CME professional. Wherever you are in the content creation process, If your work involves planning, designing, delivering, or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. This episode of Write Medicine is brought to you by Write CME Pro, a membership-driven community that provides skills, scaffolding and support for medical writers who want to create CME content with confidence. Write CME Pro gives you access to expert perspectives to help you build your CME writing skills, a portfolio accelerator to hold space so that you can create stunning samples to show your prospects, group coaching to help you build foundational and expert knowledge in CME and more. Write CME Pro is a community for people like you who are ready to grow their CME writing niche or niche, if that's how you say it. See the show notes for more details. As an accidental educator, Andrew Krim is a seasoned expert in designing educational programs for health professionals. He's the Director of Education and Professional Development at the American College of Osteopathic Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And in this episode of the Right Medicine podcast, we're exploring the potential of artificial intelligence to revolutionize continuing medical education, from writing grants to chatbots providing practice and feedback to learners. And of course, we talk about the limitations of generative AI and the direction that this technology might be taking us. Wherever you are, pop in your earbuds, grab a cup of coffee or tea and join us. And before we jump into today's episode, I just wanted to share with you that Right Medicine has only five star reviews. So I wanted to share one of those with you today from Don Harting, who listened to episode 55 featuring Eugene Posniak. And Eugene and I talked about the CME landscape in Europe and how that was changing, how that is changing. Don says, this is a terrific episode. I listened while mowing my lawn. When it was over, I still hadn't finished the whole lawn. So I listened again from the beginning. It was great. Made me laugh, made me think, made me take a deep breath 
made me wonder. Kudos to both the interviewer and the interviewee. Highly recommended to anyone active in CME, by which I mean accredited continuing education in the health professions. Thanks so much, Don, for sharing your review. And dear listener, if you enjoy the podcast, I invite you to submit a review or at the very least share an episode with a colleague or a friend. All right, on with the show. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you very much, Alex. I really appreciate you having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're glad that you're here fresh off your uh, performance yesterday at CME Palooza. I heard there was a good turnout there. So now I'm calling you Andrew, but I think you call it yourself Andy, right? I've only ever known yeah. you as, as Andrew, but it's uh, it, Andy is what most people call me. Uh, Andrew looks good on paper. Uh, I don't get too hung up on what anybody calls me unless it's late to dinner. All right, okay, <laughs> that's funny. So please tell listeners who you are and what you do. Thanks. I am Andy Krim. I'm the Director of Education and Professional Development at the American College of Osteopathic Obstetricians and Gynecologists. We're a small specialty college of women's health physicians. We have about 3,000 members nationwide and all the OB-GYN specialties. And uh, we do all sorts of education, everything from conferences, online, quality improvement, and everything in between. So, And I kind of help design all of that. Actually, I do. And so how did you end up there? How did you end up in CME? It's a funny, funny story. Uh, I went to college to be, I, one goal in mind for college was to be an attorney. And after working for attorneys for four years through college, I decided I did not want to do that. And so I'm stuck with this political science degree with a minor in journalism. Uh, what do I do with that? I turned out to be a pretty good writer. And one of the jobs I applied for was to be a grant writer at the local county hospital. So I moved from the sticks in East Texas up to the big city of Fort Worth, Texas, and uh, became a grant writer and did that for about two years. And a university hired me, the University of North Texas hired me to write grants and continuing education. And we ended up doing a lot of education and writing some grants. And I turned out to be very fond of the education process. And so I call myself an accidental educator because I never planned on being in this role but I really enjoy it. it. It's it's become a lifelong mission and passion. Well, I know you describe yourself as a CME enthusiast. And every time I've had occasion to be in your presence, uh, it's it certainly that enthusiasm is infectious because you <laughs> kind of display that in, in everything that you do. So Thank you. Um, I appreciate the way that you, you advocate for CME. I appreciate that. I, you know, it's, it's, to some people, CME will always just be a job. They, they show up, they do it, they go home. They plan meetings, they, they uh, do education. I've had the benefit that it turns out not a lot of our colleagues have had the benefit of, of experiencing, and that is, is seeing the actual changes in patients' lives that good education can, can mm. cause or that good education can make. And that uh, done that on a number of occasions uh, on large over over large areas and in very small areas, and I'm very proud of what we've been able to do throughout my career in using education to make those great big changes and in, and in, and small changes uh, in the way patients receive care and and what comes out of that in their lives. Yeah, I was talking to somebody yesterday actually, and we were having a similar conversation along the lines of. You know, it's interesting how many of us in the CME 
world are drawn here because I know a lot of us say that we're we're accidental educators and we've ended up here, you know, by by chance and serendipity and so on. But actually, there's a thread, and the thread is a lifelong, you know, being lifelong learners and ourselves, I think, and also that concern for being part of what happens to patients. We might not have a clinical background, but we are certainly drawn to being part of the process for ensuring that patients are well cared for because we could be patients, we may have been patients, or we are caregivers for people who are our patients. And so, you know, CME affects us all. It's not a fringe, a fringe community or endeavor by any means. We are here today to talk about artificial intelligence and the role of AI in, or the potential role in, or the potential uses for AI in CME and specifically ChatGPT. I know that you've, you've written about this a little bit. You post on LinkedIn. You're doing some research on it. And of course, you presented yesterday at CME Palooza on this topic. So what kind of got you interested in ChatGPT in the first place? Well, much like getting into CME, it was purely serendipitous. I uh, had just started watching in in November. uh, My oldest son was like, you really need to see some of these funny videos on TikTok. And so it was first part of November and I was like, oh, this is hilarious. And, and they're funny things. And I, we were sitting there laughing at some. And then one popped up in my feed one morning that I was watching and it, it said, there's this new thing. You're not going to believe this new technology coming out. And they demonstrated it on the video. And I was like, whoa, what is that? And it was ChatGPT. It was, it was the first release in November of ChatGPT last year. Mm-hmm. And I immediately, as soon as I logged into my computer, went to chat GPT or, or tried to find it on the internet, found it, typed in a couple of things. I was like, this is different. And <laughs> I probably spent way too much time on it that day and probably have spent way too much time on it since then, testing its boundaries, seeing what it can and can't do, coming up with, with use cases, talking people's ear off about it, talking my wife's ear off about it. But now she's she's a believer and, and a frequent user of it as well, and that's that's really how it started. I happened to see it the first week it was released, and mm-hmm. it was to me it I recognize it as a turning point in the way we process and use information. So I wanted to be kind of be at the forefront of that and learn learn everything I could about it. Oh, let's dig into that a little bit more. You're clearly an early adopter of, of ChatGPT. Would you say you're an earlier adopter of most tech or most new ideas? Selectively, yes. I, I, th- there are some things that are gimmicks. Okay. And, and I, there are some things that I, that I see in continuing education that people do tech because they can do tech, although it may not be the mm-hmm. best use of that tech. Uh, in an educational format. It, it, it's more of a, a glitz than it is substance. Right now, because of its, it, and, and people will disagree with me on this, uh, kind of the augmented reality or virtual reality in kind of traditional continuing education, because of its limited scope and limited use, it, it's more glitz than, than uh, substance at this point. Mm-hmm. I, I believe there is a role. I believe in, in certain, in certain uh, circumstances, it has a very powerful role. The general application of it because of the cost, because of the, the technical requirements involved, I think are 
they're not realistic for most CME providers to to deploy. So, but but there are other things. I mean, we, we've all had to switch to online education over the last couple of years. Yeah. We've all had to, yeah. to change the way we do things. And, and so, yeah, I've always adopted early. I've always tried to see, keep my finger on the pulse of, of the new technology that's happening. And yeah, I've always been an early adopter looking back at time. So, And so that turning point, what did that feel like? What did what was it that made you think, oh, this is this is a turning point? We're at, at some kind of inflection here. It felt like, not to date myself too much, uh, but it felt like the early 1990s. Okay. Go on. When the very first time I accessed the internet mm. to look for information and was able to find it. And it was, this was before the, the true World Wide web. This was 92, 93. I was volunteering in college to drive a congressman who's running for Senate, state Senate around East Texas. And I didn't know anything about him. So I looked it up on, uh, I think we had CompuServe at the time and <laughs> looked him up on CompuServe okay. and found his profile <laughs> and what he voted, what he voted on. And. I was asking him about these things. He's asked me, he goes, how'd you find out about all this? And I pulled out the profile that I printed off and, and said, I found this on the internet. He goes, what's the internet? <laughs> and if, if I had had, if I had known then what I know now, I would have said, you'd need to ask Al Gore, but um, I didn't. Right. Uh, he invented that. Yeah. But yeah, it yeah. was, uh, <laughs> but it was that at that point, it was like the instant access to information is going to solve a lot of people's issues never knew that it was going to cause so many issues that, that, that it has. But it was then that I was like, something has changed in this world where we have all this access to all this information. And all we have to do is turn on our computer. That's the way I felt the first time I used chat GPT. It was, it was suddenly I'm not searching for something like I've done the last 30 years on the internet. Mm. I'm seeking information. I'm, I'm having a conversation, which, which still sounds weird and feels weird. But I'm having a conversation with this this program, and it's learning what I'm looking for and providing more specific answers as I ask it more questions. And it's right. It, it's truly conversational. It's I, I find myself saying thank you. I find myself saying please, and I'm like, why am I doing this to a <laughs> yeah, computer? Yeah, I say please. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, but it is. It is. And so you said you were you were playing around with things. You're obviously kind of exploring things early on, way back in in November. What kind of use cases did you see, uh, you know, ChatGPT potentially having in CME? And that's presumably evolved as well over the last six months. It certainly has evolved and certainly and gotten a lot more complicated. And then that has freed me up to explore some of the issues around the complications as well. Some of the earlier things were just like, can you design the education for an OB gen to do this? Can you create a case vignette around this? And without much specificity, it it spit it out. And mm-hmm. since then, it is I've I've provided it case vignettes, asked it to, for example, ask me a question about that case vignette, provided an answer, oh, and then it allowed it to provide me feedback. And then it followed. It asked me follow up questions if it doesn't understand or or doesn't believe my answer is is uh, an appropriate response. That is the basis of education. 
practice and feedback. You're you're learning more with practice and feedback than you are with any other uh, way of doing things. And and to me, that if it gets refined, if if, if we're able to to, there are several things, several problems with with the uh, Chat GPT model right now. But if we can get it to a point to where it can reliably provide that feedback, we don't have to have a cadre of of healthcare experts sitting there one-on-one educating a healthcare provider and then providing that feedback. That can be done remotely off-site, that can be done at, at leisure, and it mm-hmm. kind of goes from, kind, it kind of expands from there. Uh, then you have it, potential use cases down the road. This is, this is not right now, so no one gets scared. But y- you could have it identify issues within a patient chart or within a physician's medical records and say, it appears this physician is having problems doing this. I'm going to present this physician with some cases and practice and education around it, where it automatically creates that education based on what it's finding and provides the feedback and learning and, and, and can show that that physician has improved their confidence and track performance. It's truly as, as quickly as AI tools are developing, that would not surprise me if that comes out in the next year or two. What will it take for, for that to be a reality, do you think? It's going to take take a financial investment for that to be a reality. Somebody's going to have to to uh, fund it. You've got developers who have to that that have to build it. You have you have educators who have to conceive it. You have tech companies, uh, the the electronic health record companies that have to allow access to the records. Then you have to have the healthcare providers who have the confidence in the systems. That are all working. That, that that they're seeing the information uh, correctly and interpreting that information correctly, and feel comfortable enough sharing that with them. So th- there are a lot of steps in place, but as rapidly as this field is developing right now, I don't see it being too far off. One of the other cool things, one of the other cool use cases that I uh, have used, I do a lot of grant writing in my position, as do a lot of of CME providers, and. One of the things I tried to start doing was, how can I use this to write grants? Is, is, is there a way that can support me in writing grants that kind of take, takes the burden off? I mean, you're a medical writer. You understand the, the challenges involved with coming up with a needs assessment and one that, sure. that's believable. And so I, I, I kind of went down that rabbit hole. And it's not perfect. It's not a perfect tool. It's not anytime soon going to replace a writer. I can tell you that, but what it can do and what I found that it can do is provide ideas for writers to build on. Mm -hmm. I call it my efficiency lever because instead of pouring through journals or abstracts or papers, I ask it a question like, what could be the top three gaps? And I, I provide a very specific thing that I'm looking for and it will spit those out. I'll need to go validate those, of course, and then I need to build around that. Yeah. Also, just for fun as an experiment, and it, it's, I know it's weird to call that fun, I, I actually wrote a grant completely using chat GPT, a grant proposal completely using chat GPT. I used the RFP that was released to, to write, help write the needs assessment, uh, along with some, mm-hmm. some crafted prompts that I put together. I told it what the methodology was, and it wrote a description of the methodology. It was pretty good. 
It came up with the learning objectives based on the needs assessment. It came up with very poor outcomes plan. I tried to train it on Moore's models. It just could not get it. So I just, I scrapped that part. I wrote the outcomes plan by myself, but it wrote the cover letter. It wrote, it came up with the title. It, I, it, it was a full grant request. Mm-hmm. It was submitted a few months ago. It's still pending decision. It hasn't been rejected yet. Wow. Uh, I expected it to be rejected in the first three or four weeks, but it hasn't. So it, it, it's interesting. I, I, I'm waiting to see what, what happens. I uh, have told someone at the company where I submitted it that this is what I did. They're monitoring it. They're not providing any input. They're monitoring it to see what happens because they're interested in it as well. So we're using this as an, as a, uh, as an experiment. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a case study. And, and we'll see where that goes. Yeah, no, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. A, a few questions. So when you say methodology, do you mean the methodology for your search strategy or the methodology for education design or the outcomes frameworks? What Educational design. Sorry okay. about that. No, that's okay. I, I was just, I was curious because in using the word methodology, presumably you had to add additional parameters there for mm-hmm. ChatGPT in order for it to kind of provide you with uh, something credible. It's interesting that the outcomes plan was poor because we know that <laughs> the information that ChatPT provides us with is based on you know what's already out there in the public domain. So that might right. tell us something a little bit challenging and dodgy about the information on, on outcomes that's already out there in the public domain, which is probably no surprise because it's a real struggle for a lot of providers and writers to uh, you know kind of wrap our heads around and try and figure out what the best uh, assessment and outcomes framework is for a given educational strategy. Mm-hmm. And there was one other point of interest there for me anyway in, in what you were describing. I'll, I'll circle back to it. One of the things that you said earlier was that there are a lot of problems with this type of technology at the moment. Can you share a little bit about what you see some of those problems are? Absolutely. The very first one is there's no intelligence behind artificial intelligence. It is simply trying to guess Mm -hmm. what the next word is based on what you've asked it and what the previous word that it put out. So it's, I used this example yesterday during uh, CME Palooza. What it's doing is if, if I walk into an ice cream shop and I say, I would like to order blank, chat GPT will know I'm in an ice cream shop and it's not going to say spaghetti Mm -hmm. because they don't usually serve spaghetti in an ice cream shop. So it will most likely say it's logical to say ice cream. Now, it may say ice cream, chocolate ice cream, a banana split, something along those lines. But it's going to have something to do with ice cream because it's predicted mm-hmm. that. It, it, it's it's uh, logically said that's where he is and that's what I'm going to say he's going to want. And then I could go back and say, I don't like chocolate. I don't like pistachios. I don't like bubble gum. I am going to order and it will come back and say butternut ice cream or something along those lines. So, so it's predicting, it's learning from what you put in and, mm-hmm. and learning. That's the first problem is that it, th- there's no intelligence. It's just predicting. So a lot of the times when you put in, mm-hmm. especially with something very specific uh, and scientific, uh, which is what we, we try to focus on in our profession, you get garbage back or you get something that sounds good. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you, you kind of dive into the citations it provides, it's garbage. It, it, it's, it's, it's inaccurate. It, it's not specific. 
but that's where as writers, I, I think is a very good opportunity for us to, to take something like that and build upon it and say, okay, we know this part is garbage, but this is actually a couple of good sentences that I can start from. Or they kind of have the right idea, but they went about it the wrong way. We can, we can build off of this and go. Some of the other issues, and I know ChatGPT, uh, OpenAI has tried to, to address this in, in uh, certain ways, is the propensity for uh, racial and cultural biases in uh, AI. And that's Absolutely. something that we're trying in medicine, we're, we're trying to overcome every day. And why would we want to rely on a model that has that weakness already built into it that they're trying to get out as well? So that's something else that we have to be on guard about. That that's that's a little bit dangerous. The other thing is because if if you use ChatGPT, either the paid version or the free version, everything you put into ChatGPT stays within ChatGPT and it learns from it, which means it is yeah. that that's part of its knowledge base now and could come out somewhere else mm-hmm. or be used to train train someone else on on what you're providing. That's certainly a risk that's certain it for companies that that are using it. There was a case last mm-hmm. week uh, about Samsung where they didn't read the user agreement too too closely and they were putting in analyzing data and putting in some code and all of a sudden they they started seeing some of their own code spit back at them. Oops, that's available to everybody oh, in the wow. world now. And they can't get it out of chat GPT I because now it's that. learned. Yeah. It, and and you know, the user agreement clearly states that they just didn't read the user agreement or, or didn't care about the user agreement at that point, thought it never would happen. There are some models. Uh, one was released uh, yesterday, late, uh, late yesterday, that it's called Dolly, not D-A-L-L-E. That's the image generator. This is Dolly, like Hello Dolly. That's the image one, yeah. Dolly 2 is, it, it's a large language model that, uh, or language learning module model that rests on your own servers and you can train it on the information you want to train it on and everything stays within your within your company within okay. your organization. Uh Microsoft Azure has has a similar feature. Now they they've invested 10 billion dollars into ChatGPT and and as a benefit of that they get to incorporate all that technology into all of their products. Microsoft Azure has has a very similar feature. Uh some of the demonstrations that are could certainly be time savers uh, in certain use cases. But right now, if you're using the public versions, even the paid versions, what you put in there is going to come out that somewhere else uh, it's being used to train it. So, yeah, and certainly. And one of the big issues right now is the reliability and accuracy of what it spits out. So it's that's that's the big question. Yeah, 100 percent. I know that there's been a lot of a lot of text written about this now. Um, Jonathan Brill's written about this and mm-hmm. there have been. A number of journalists and scientists who've done kind of you know experimental papers and whatnot, and to draw attention to the inaccuracy and the the false citations, and of course in the scientific publications world, the Nature Group and the JAMA Group have issued you know guidelines that don't rec, and the American Medical Association Style Guide doesn't recognize ChatGPT as a human, and therefore it's not part of authorship. So there's a lot of kind of interesting, you know, statements and recommendations being being circulated at the moment on the basis of of the inaccuracy and false claims and so on. And it it and certainly within the circles that I operate, there's 
there's an emergent consensus, I think, that this kind of technology can be helpful in, as you put it, you know, writing prompts, mm-hmm. a place to start thinking about ideas to organize uh, a grant or a needs assessment story around. But I know that you've been working on other use cases in your organization. So can you talk a little bit about you know, some of the work that you're doing? And I think this takes us back to what you were talking about at the beginning of the conversation in terms of that practice and feedback. It, it is. And, and I, I, I will preface this with uh, these are all in the very nascent stages of, of development because I don't have an unlimited budget to hire a developer to turn this into something that is feasible to use in our learning management system at the moment. Mm. But I have crafted some prompts where I feed in a case, I uh, give it some parameters, and it actually, it asks me a question based on that case or asks someone else a question based on that case. And then it asks, do you have any, and, and then provides feedback based on the response to their question. I've tested with, with tested it with correct answers. I've tested it with incorrect answers. It provides very accurate feedback. I've shown this to about two dozen physicians. They're like, they're they're never going to get this. Let's try this, and it gets it. And and I'm just, right. it blows their mind. I'm like, we've got to find a use for this. I want to integrate it into some of our online activities. I I, I mm-hmm. would love to prepare, and this is just a very basic model. Uh, I would love to prepare some didactic material, stop the, stop a video, stop whatever that's being given, and then present the user with this case study and then have mm-hmm. have the system question the user, provide the feedback, and then ask the user if they have any additional questions that, and then provide feedback based on those questions. The challenge there, again, is the accuracy of what's being put out, because while I can control yeah. the the, the the three or four sample cases that I'm using, I'm not going to be able to test for every possible answer that everybody's going to put in there. So one of the things that I'm working mm-hmm. on right now is designing a study to give us a general idea on how accurate that feedback would be. And it's taking case presentations that are expert designed, case vignettes that are expert designed, and taking the feedback based on, on those. The reason I, I really like the chat GPT model and want to do the chat GPT model is because it's free text. You're able to put in there what you're thinking. Yeah. In most case vignettes that are used in CME, you get this nice case vignette and then you get, what would you do next? And you have four or five choices under that question. Right. Medicine's not multiple choice. And in some instances it is, but, but most of the time medicine is not multiple choice. There are a lot of different factors going in there. Having the, the healthcare provider be able to type in what, what their response is and say, but if this happens and, and say, provide, provide the entire, their entire train of thought and then provide mm-hmm. accurate and specific feedback to that is a much more, is a much richer learning experience than, than just checking a, one of, one of, one of five choices. And it's the closest approximation of, you know, clinical education. Where, you know, in a grand round yeah. situation, you're, you are asked a question and you're expected mm-hmm. to give a response, free text, <laughs> free words, That's right. and then get the feedback in real time from, from the expert in front of you. That's exactly right. And given that kind of use case, then when you say you're kind of working on it, and I know we're, we're getting close to our, our time here, 
what kind of things are you taking into consideration in terms of, you know, ensuring the accuracy of the feedback? And I guess a follow up question there is what I'll just, which I'll just ask up front is, you know, what are the ethics of using that kind of modality for education when at the moment we don't necessarily know what the sources of the material are? So that's that, that's a big question, and that's what's kind of slowing me down because I I like to run forward and then look back to where I've been, and so I've kind of pulled myself back a little bit and said, okay, let's let's if we're going to do this, let's do it right. Let let's really pave the way to do it, and that's what first of all I want to want to conduct the study and and at least validate the accuracy of the feedback it provides in a large enough statistically significant uh, sample. To where we can reasonably say most of what you're getting out of it is accurate. Mm-hmm. The prompt that I the prompts that I've written to support this provide citations, provide inline citations. It also clearly indicates this response was generated by artificial intelligence. You are a trained healthcare provider. It's up to you to, to make the best clinical decisions for you and your patients. So, you know, you know, that's not a far off stretch from the disclaimer that a lot of people put at the end of their, uh, or at the beginning of their CME activities. Sure. Yeah. But, but th- those, those really are the challenges for the accuracy. Actually, I had help chat GPT help me produce this. Uh, we developed a rubric that would measure the accuracy. Uh, we developed another part of the rubric that would screen for racial and cultural biases mm-hmm. uh, in responses. And and that rubric would be will be used for the expert advice and for the feedback provided by uh, ChatGPT. Right. So we can compare apples to apples, I guess. So um, that that's proceeding. Uh, we have interest. We uh, we want to involve several organizations in doing this, but but the, but it's something we're moving ahead with. And is it something you see uh, publishing at some point in the future? Absolutely. Probably sooner than later. Good. Well, that's good to to hear. The more kind of evidence based information, or at least real case, real use case analysis uh, we get for this kind of technology, the better. And so, just mm-hmm. to kind of wrap up, you know, if people are interested in dipping their toe in Chat GPT, what kind of recommendations would you have for them? Because right at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about. I know you talked about logistics and sure. prediction but part of prediction and logistics is really context and it seems and you you've been talking about prompts as well and so what kind of recommendations would you give to people who are starting this journey with chat gpt in order for them to get as much out of it as possible the best advice i can give is to just get in and start playing around with it just just create your first prompt <laughs> And what, what I mean by prompt is figure out something you want it to do and ask it to do it. While we were sitting on CME Palooza yesterday, I asked it to create a crossword puzzle that would be appropriate for CME providers. And it created a crossword puzzle as I was sitting there. Wow. Something that simple <laughs> is the beginning of the prompt. And then you're like, oh, I'd really like it to do that. And if you'd really like it to do that, tell it you would really like it to do something else. You have to remember as you're doing this, it is a conversation. You want to give ChatGBT a role. You never want to just go in blind because you're pulling a random person off the street and you don't know what their expertise is. 
you want to tell ChatGPT, you are a world-class medical educator, or you are the, the, the smartest medical educator in the world. That tells it, okay, I need to start looking at medical education literature here when, when I provide responses. You want to give it an objective. You want to, you want to give it variables and say, provide this, but don't provide this. Give it a tone in which you want the feedback. Do you want it to be humorous? Do you want it to be melancholy? Do you want it to be scholarly? Do you want it to be, look like an academic paper? And it will match the tone that you're looking for. One of the fun things I did when we were first starting out is my wife is a consultant for nonprofits and she, I, I showed her how we could use this to write an article for her blog. And she goes, that is amazing. I said, now watch this. And I said, rewrite this article in the style of, of the art of war. And it rewrote instantly the article into the style of the art of war using different headings, making, making the paragraphs under those headings relevant to, to the content. It was amazing. I was just blown away. I've used it to write fun songs. I've used it to, uh, write parodies of songs. You can do a lot with Don't Stop Believing by Journey. <laughs> it <does a> song. <laughs> now that dates you. <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> Something else I was going to say there just before we wrapped up. Yeah, so specificity. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it likes specificity is what I'm hearing you say there. It does. It does. And, and you have to think of it as a toddler right now. <laughs> you don't tell a three-year-old to go outside and just play. Or go outside and do something because a toddler is going to run out into the street or a toddler is going to climb a tree and fall out and break his arm. And, and nobody wants that to happen. You want to tell the toddler, hey, let's go on the back porch and play with your cars. That's specific. Uh, Chat GPT is a toddler. Right. It's only been alive. It has only been alive since November. And uh, it's, it's grown from Chat GPT 3 to, to GPT 3.5 to GPT 4 now. And it's, 5 is just down the road. And it's and, and each each iteration of, of the GPT model is is exponentially better trained than its previous versions. Do you think people have the skills to ask those kinds of questions? I hope they do. I'm thinking of, you know, one of the things that's one of the things that's happened over the last, well, maybe generation or so is that, you know, the, the form and the depth of communication has changed. You know, yeah. Social media has changed the way that we engage in conversation and think about conversation. And you described the relationship with something like ChatGPT as a conversation. And so I'm kind of wondering, is there something there we need to pay attention to in terms of what we mean by conversation and how we approach the questioning part of using this kind of technology? Or is that just a silly question? That is not a silly question. And, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll turn this back around to something you and I know very well. There are people who can't write. They, they know how to write. They, they have the skills to write, but they just can't write. There are people who can't communicate. I mean, there are people before ChatGPT came along. There are people before COVID came along who just couldn't communicate. And it, sure. all, of these, all of these are, are, I think at one point in CME, we called these soft skills that, that, that we tried to teach. These are all skills that people can can learn and people can develop. And never before has being able to 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 craft a conversation with with an inanimate object of, of all things been more important. I mean, the world is I don't say this lightly, the world is changing. 
there were over 120 yeah. AI tools released last week. And wow, wow, that's I had no idea. Yeah, a lot are Me Too tools. They they do a lot of the same things. There's a lot of overlap, but some of them are actually mm -hmm. innovative tools. And mm -hmm. if if you don't know how to use these new tools that are coming along, you're going to be far behind in in a competitive job market. You're going to be far behind in. I'm only able, for example not being able to use a tool, I'm able to crank out one or two needs assessments a week. If I use this tool, I can do five or six. And maybe it, it, that's just an example, wow. but that's, that's something that to think about. It makes you more efficient. It, it increases your efficiency and, and could potentially free up more of your personal time to spend with family or doing things you really enjoy. So I think the people who can't communicate and carry on those types of conversations with this crazy inanimate object will either need to learn how to do it or find a, a career path that doesn't rely on it. There are skills there to develop for sure. Andy Krim, CME enthusiast, text and early adopter and chat GBT enthusiast. Thanks so much for sharing your insights and wisdom with listeners of Right Medicine. Thank you so much, Alex. You have a wonderful day. You too. If you'd like to connect with me or today's guest or access any of the resources we talked about, check out the show notes for this episode. They're on my website, where you'll also find additional resources. Find the show notes at alexhausen.com forward slash write w-r-i-t-e dash medicine dash podcast. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the Write Medicine newsletter where you'll find bi-weekly tips, tools and resources to help you create continuing medical education content with confidence. And thank you for listening today. Word of mouth is the most meaningful way we can help listeners find us and reach a wider audience. So please share this episode with a friend, a colleague or a client who might find the podcast helpful. And if you enjoy listening to the podcast, please write a favourable review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or share your testimonial on the dedicated testimonial link, which is also in the show notes.